0: If you're in the fifth grade or younger, there is a service downstairs. You can go at this time. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 through 26, actually focusing on verse 25. Um, I'm going to be spending the next five weeks today and the next four uh, talking about what is the church. Now, There's no way that I can cover exhaustively the topic of the church in five weeks. Don't uh, plan to try to do that. But um, what I do want to share is um, some of the attitudes uh, and uh, attributes that ought to be true of the family nature of the local church, the, the, the local expression of Christ's body. There's a church universal all over the world comprised of every believing child of God in every location. And then there are local congregations that are microcosms of that big church. And by microcosm, I mean we are to reflect in a smaller way the essence of the whole body so that this local congregation right here should be a complete church uh, even though we're not the whole church, we should be complete in many respects, particularly in our attitudes toward one another. And so I'm going to be focusing on those things that are true within this family and that kind of relate to, to family relationships in general. Jesus said, this is how all... Men will know that you're my disciples. The way you love each other. That you love one another. He was talking about a love that is abnormal on the human scale and supernatural in its quality because he explained further that the kind of love that you show for each other is the way I have loved you. This is how they will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other as I have loved you, and Christ's love for us was a, was a supernaturally empowered love, not like fallen human nature, but like something uh, totally uh, unseen among people. And in fact, in the early church, uh, as they observed the care that the church uh, members had one for another in the book of Acts, they marveled uh, at how they loved each other. That was part of the essence of uh, who they were as a church. And so I, I want us to be looking at those attitudes and attributes that characterize that kind of love and what a loving, uh, close-knit uh, church family uh, should look like. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, Paul says, there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacks. So there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members are honored with it. You know, June, we've just come out of June, we're well into July, we're about <laughs> moving toward the end of summer, but this time of year is, is a great time of year for weddings. A lot of people get married in June and July, uh, in August and September, it's just that seems to be the time of year for marriage, uh, weddings, and it's also the time of year to celebrate graduations. And so uh, we probably all had all kinds of invitations, you know, to attend this person's graduation or that or to attend showers or to attend uh, weddings and one thing and another. And as we celebrate with families the exciting and wonderful things that are happening in their lives, we celebrate the landmarks with them. We rejoice in, in the progress that have been made or the new family that's beginning. It's also a time, obviously, as uh, we have recently experienced in ours, uh, sometimes there are funerals or there are other things that bring sadness into one's life and loss. And it's a time to suffer with those that are suffering, to come alongside those that are hurting and and that are experiencing uh, grief. Rowena is going to be going back to Florida in another week and a half or so. Uh, to uh, spend some more time with her dad because it's just needful that uh, that that time of transition have special attention. And Paul says that the whole family of God is supposed to be like this. That we rejoice with those and celebrate with those who have successes. Somebody gets a job. Somebody uh, gets a raise. Somebody buys a new house. Somebody has... A new opportunity. They have a new baby. Something happens in their lives and the whole church comes alongside and is excited for them about that opportunity, that blessing. And when people suffer and they're going through hard times and challenges and financial reversals and and sadness and loss and and death, the, the family should be gathering around and suffering together so that they know they're not alone in these situations of life, it's you know uh, joy shared. We have this little sign in our house that uh, says, "A joy shared is multiplied, and a sorrow shared is cut in half." Um, that there's that thing about the body of Christ that we should have that kind of nature and attitude toward one another. And so I was looking at verse 25 of this passage that Paul mentions here. And, and verse 25 says, so there would be no division in the body. Now the division comes when one person thinks they're more important than somebody else. I was reading uh, one commentator and he was uh, telling the true story of a friend of his. They, they went to college together and his friend got a full ride on a football scholarship. He just was one of those people that was uniquely uh, enabled and, and gifted by, by his, uh, you know, his body and his strength and his mind and agility. That he was a fast starter, and he was a good runner, and he was tactically um, uh, agile. And, and they just wrote him a whole scholarship. You know, you can go to school free. Just play football for us. And he was working a summer job. In a logging uh, camp, and he, through a freak accident, lost the big toe of his right foot. And his football scholarship ended. He could no longer play football at all. No ability to start, no ability to turn quickly, loss of balance everything changed because he lost his big toe. You know, And we have a tendency to look at those uh, members of the body that are much more in the front and forefront and say, that person's important. And to overlook the people that give balance and structure and, and, and capabilities to the body that do other things. And Paul is making the point here that no one can say, we don't need that person. They're non-essential. Everyone is essential. God has put us in the body for a reason. We bring something to the table that is necessary. And so he says, I don't want to have division in the body, but I want you to care for each other. And as you care for each other, That's beyond your service, it's getting involved with one another emotionally, involved in your successes and in your failures, and walking alongside of each other through life, so that you know that you're never alone. And as I began to meditate on this passage, I was thinking, Lord, how do I approach this? And... These promptings kind of occur to me as I study. I enjoy this so much because I always feel like the Holy Spirit is sitting beside me, uh, counseling and teaching, you know, and, and offering suggestions. And I always feel like when I come in on Sunday that, that God and I have had this conversation and now it's time to share with you what I've learned from Him, you know. And I had this nudging that I should do a word study on the word care. And that I should really dig into that. And uh, I had a professor years ago that, that said, you know, when you do your preparation for your message, leave the pots and pans and those kind of things in the kitchen and just bring the food out in a nice serving dish. Um, but um, in this case, I'm bringing all the kitchen utensils out <laughs> because I want to share with you the the mechanics of this word study and, and bring out the things that begin to, to dawn on me as I uh, kind of delved into this, the when you study a word in Scripture, you can't just go to Webster's. Okay, What what does that word mean? I'll look it up in Webster's. Well, the problem is, Webster's will tell you what the word means in English in the last hundred years or so. If you get a new edition, it might even be shorter than that and include some of the slang, you know, and who knows, maybe they'll start adding uh, emoticons and (laughs) all those other little things to the dictionary, but... But you don't get a sense of... You want to know, how was this word used when biblical writers used it? What did they mean by it? What was their sense? And furthermore, you don't want to do the study on the English word, because uh, English words sometimes translate three or four or five different words from the original language. And so you want to look at what was the in this case, the Greek word that they were using. Now, don't get nervous about that, because quite honestly, there are, there are apps out now for your iPhone or your iPad that you can buy, and you can do word studies in the original language without ever going to one day of class on the original languages of the Bible. It's just amazing. Um, you know, I have some apps that I could show you how to use them in 15 minutes, where you can do a word study on the same Greek word all over the Bible. And so, I wanted to look up the Greek word behind the word care, which is merimnosine, merimnosine. And I wanted to find out, how is this word used whenever it occurs in the Bible? Fortunately for me, it only occurs 26 times. That simplified my task. It occurred seven times in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it occurred 19 times in the New Testament. And so I looked up every single verse where this word occurred. And here, here's some interesting things that I began to discover. Now, I've given you the text references, and you can look these up at home. I'm going to breeze through the passages in the interest of time so that I can uh, read the context for you. But, for example, as I began to say, how does this word get translated by... Uh, the, the Old Testament Septuagint translators. I came to. Um, what did I come to? It's back here somewhere. I'm sorry. I got to change uh, change apps. No, I didn't come to my conclusion yet. I'm getting there, Marshall, but I'm not there yet. Uh, in uh, in Exodus five nine, let the labor be heavier on the men. And let them work at it, so they will pay no attention to false words. Now the context is, Moses has gone back to Egypt and said, Let my people go, and Pharaoh said, Are you crazy? And why are you stirring these people up with these false hopes of freedom? I'm going to fix you. I'm going to double their work. I'm not going to give them any more raw materials. They're going to have to work five times as hard. I'm going to wear them out so they won't have time to think about what you're saying. And you know, and their immediate reaction was, thanks a lot, Moses. We, we've just been waiting for a deliverer like you, you know, to make our work impossible. But interestingly, the word merimnosine that is translated here is, occurs twice in this verse. Let them work at it is one of the translations. Let them work at it. And the other one is, so they will pay no attention. Pay no attention to false words. There's two concepts here. One includes hard work. And the other one includes focused attention. We want them to work hard so they can't pay any attention to this. So that, that's the first example. Then in Second Samuel 7.10, God is making a covenant with David... And and uh, the enemies of Israel have been constantly disturbing them. And I don't know if you've uh, moved around a lot. How many of you have moved more than five times in your life? Oh, a lot of you. Okay, so you, you know. And, and sometimes uh, people, you know, I think uh, I think Herb and Reed were telling me they moved 20 times in his career with more business forms. Um, my wife's parents were moving every year and a half or so in, in his military career. Sometimes people are moving all the time. And when you never know when you're going to have to move again, um, it's hard to settle in. It's hard to just finally home, you know, uh, because, you know, I, I'm never going to see that tree grow. Uh, I can plant it, but somebody else is going to enjoy it because I'm going to be long gone. Uh, why bother with those shrubs? You know, it's just the kind of thing. You're always uh, on edge And so if you can settle down, you know, if you can say, I'm going to be here for a while, I'm going to park. Whew, I can plant some trees, I can landscape the yard, I can customize the living room, you know, I can do these kind of things. That's exactly what he's saying here. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. So the word here translated is disturbed. And some of our versions of the scripture say, so they will not move again. In other words, I can rest. And I'm not going to always be living on edge, waiting for the next assignment. Um, Psalm 37:19. Well, actually it's 38, 19. Um, I, it's wrong in your study guide. It's Psalm 38, 19. It's not wrong, I was just following a different version of the Bible. Psalm 38, 19, um, or 18 says, I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Kind of hit home for a minute here. Have you ever done something wrong? I mean, something significant, and you were afraid you were going to be found out? and what happens you think about it all the time you're worried that somebody's going to find out what you've been up to and um you know you talk to people that have committed crimes and gotten away with it for a while and when they finally get arrested some of them are actually relieved it's like because they've been running the whole time and how they can david says i confess my iniquity because I'm full of anxiety over my sin, he it says, "It's given me no rest. I can't get this out of my mind. It's constantly nagging me." This is the word that's translated anxiety. It's constantly on my mind. Proverbs fourteen twenty three says, "In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty." Now you say, "What word?" How is Merim translated here? It's the word labor. In all labor, there is profit. But mere talk leads to poverty. What kind of labor produces profit? Casual? Occasional? No, persistent. Focused. Concentrated. I'm invested. I'm working hard. It's the idea of hard work again. And then Ezekiel 16.42, God is speaking about Israel and His anger toward them. It says, So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Which of these words translates "merimnosin"? It's the word angry. You say, what? We've been talking about care, concern, anxiety, pressure, labor, and now you're talking about anger? But notice the qualities of God's anger. How do you feel when you're full of fury and you're jealous and angry? Isn't He talking about something that consumes you? That's constantly fomenting, bubbling uh, always stirred up. And so the the Word expresses that constant agitation that gets no rest. And God says, I will come to rest. I will be pacified and angry no more. In the New Testament passage you all know, Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about the future. Don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat, nor your body as to what you'll wear. Uh, Life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Which of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? I notice that Jesus didn't say, which of you, by worry, can subtract an hour from his life. I think sometimes people shorten their lives. By worry. But you can't add to it. You know, it's not going to make it any longer. Don't worry, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek these things, but your Father knows you need them. It's interesting that in the New Testament, whenever this word is used, and in this case it's worry or anxiety, when it's used concerning oneself, it is always. Negative. Matthew 10.19 says, take no thought. When they bring you before the magistrates and they're persecuting you, don't take any thought about what you're going to say. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words in that moment. Jesus says to Martha, Luke 10.41, Martha, Martha, oh Martha... You are worried and troubled about so many things. Martha, you're always fretting. You're you're always stewing about something. You're always troubled. There's only one thing that's really important. Sit sit at my feet and listen to me. And and don't get so concerned about everything. 1 Corinthians 7.32 says... The unmarried person, the single person, is free from concern about caring for a spouse. person is married, has children, has a spouse they have to think about their spouse they have to think about their kids it's 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 a duty you you've got to give some thought to these people, but if you're single you're unencumbered you don't have to think about how to meet the needs of your spouse, how to take care of your children. You don't have those concerns. But in a positive, or in one more negative sense, Philippians 4.6, Paul says, "...be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your requests known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ." The two occasions where this word is used affirmatively, interestingly enough, is in reference to others. Paul says of Timothy, I'm going to send Timothy to you because I have no one else who shares my concern for you. Who shares my concern. He feels about you the way I feel about you. I'm Sorry, that was to the Philippians. And then in 1 Corinthians 12.25, our text, have the same care for one another. So if you followed me and if we can distill all of these usages of this same Greek word in all of the passages where it occurs and try to build an expanded and comprehensive definition, here's what it would look like. How do we define this term? It means to give thought and attention to solutions. Think about how we're going to solve this. To turn a thing over and over in one's mind. To worry. To be thoughtful and concerned about the outcome. How's this going to end? Let me think this through. To be anxious to give attention, as in hard work, to care for. This term means something is on my mind and it occupies my thoughts and it takes my energy and it focuses my creativity and it causes me to 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 think about it at night, and to wake up with it on my mind, and to be concerned about it, and it, it stays with me through the day. And here's the real kicker. God says, concerning yourself and your needs, you should never be like this. Don't worry about what you need. Your Father knows what you need. Don't worry about it. Put it in His hands. Let Him take care of it. Turn it over to Him. But in respect to other people, their needs should concern us in this way. Now, here's a paradigm shift for you. (laughs) Here's looking at the world through a different set of lens. Paul writes to the Romans, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible is given to us, along with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to confront our thinking the way we naturally think as fallen people. And to cause us to recognize our natural inclinations in contrast to God's purposes and seeing the difference to put our trust in God to change us so that we begin to look like Him and not like the natural man. He wants to transform us into the image of Christ by the power of His Spirit So that we reflect His character. And God says it is natural for the world, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, to worry about their lives. And I don't want you to worry about your life. I want you to put your trust in God. It is abnormal for unbelievers to care very much what happens to anybody else. And God says, I want you to take all that worry and all that anxiety and all that stress and pressure you feel and I want you to invest it in the people around you. I want you to be concerned for them. I want you to care about them. I want you to love them. I want you to find out what's going on in their lives. I want you to invest in their lives to the point that their problems keep you up at night. I'm exaggerating here a little bit. Maybe not. That their problems cause you to pray for them. That their problems cause you to call them up and say, how are you doing? That their problems motivate you to say, have a cup of coffee with me and let's talk about how things are going with you. I'm interested in you to be invested in one another to the point that people know we care, we know what's happening in their lives, we're interested in it. We're not gossips, we're not curious uh, um you know voyeurs. We want to know what's happening because we love them and we want to be involved with them. We want to pray for them. We want to uh, come alongside them. We want them to know they're not in this alone. That's the kind of love That we should invest in one another. Now, here's an amazing thing, and frankly, it's great, if I can say so, it's great psychology, but why should that be surprising? God put us together, and He's the, you know, He's the master of psychology, if you please, true psychology. It is very healthy to stop thinking about yourself. And to serve other people. That is very healthy. When you get your eyes off yourself. And you start caring about somebody else. To the point that you get invested in them. Your life will change. You will become a happier. Freer. Person who is. Who is excited about what you're seeing happen in somebody else's life when you stop focusing on yourself. And this is exactly what what the Scripture is saying. Take your burdens, put them on God's lap. That's His problem. My burdens are His problem. Now, what am I going to do with my time? i got all this extra time. (laughs) I don't have to worry about myself. Well, get interested in other people. Find out what's going on in their lives. Pray for them. Spend time with them. Love them. Rejoice with them. Weep with them. Get concerned about them. This should be characteristic. Can you see the genius of this in the church? I mean, God is really smart. What would happen... If everyone in this room had no expectations of anyone else here meeting their needs. None. Because you've got all your attention on God. I'm looking to God to meet my needs. But everyone in this room took an interest in being supportive and caring and loving toward the people around them. Can you see the genius of that? I mean, that's just like, wow. So now everybody is is blessed because they're caring for each other. They're loving each other. And no one's disappointed because they weren't expecting it. They were looking to God for their own problems. But they were giving themselves to other people. What a happy, wonderful place to be. When you have a family that's more interested in one another than in their own self, that's an amazing kind of of unity and blessing that God wants to bring. And this is exactly what Paul is saying: "Is I'm not talking to you about something ridiculous. It it doesn't make sense to the world." Did you know that's why the Bible says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit for they're spiritually discerned? Do you know the reason for that? It's not because the Bible's written in some strange language and it's mysterious. It's because when you read what it says in plain English, it means exactly what it says, and the natural man says, that is really stupid. Nobody can live like that. That's just nuts. What a crazy book. But in fact, God is saying to us, I will empower you to live this way, and it will transform your life. It will give you purpose and meaning and and focus and joy. And in the process, it will bless everybody else. What could be better? I want to give you a challenge this morning. I'm I'm going to get in your comfort zone a little bit. And I don't mean you have to do this right after church. First hour, somebody, I saw someone make a beeline to somebody else, and they were already connecting up. That's okay, but I don't mean for you to do it right this minute. But here's what I want you to do. Seriously, I want you to take this challenge. I want you to look around the room. You can do that mentally, or you can do that when we get up to dismiss. Look around. Who here do you not know very well? Who here, do you just, you know their name, you say hi to them every Sunday? But you, you don't really, you're not really connected, you know. This could be couples to couples, um, you know, one person to another, and and purpose within your heart. I am going to call that person up. They heard the same sermon I did, so they know what's going on. They're not going to think you're weird. I'm going to call them up, and I'm going to say, "Would you?" meet me for a cup of coffee at Panera, McDonald's, Starbucks, wherever. Um, you like to walk? Would you go for a walk with me at the park? Could we get together? I would like to get to know you. I realize I've been going to church with you for three years. I don't know anything about you. I'd just like to get to know you. Now, I'm not suggesting that you get together and, and spill your deepest, darkest secrets and greatest burdens in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> you have to build a relationship. You have to. Uh, Tim Westergren uses this term. He says, building bridges of trust that can withstand the weight of truth. You have to build bridges of trust. You have to get to know people. You have to take time. You don't want to discover after you've spilled your guts that you're having coffee with the town gossip. You know, you, you want to give it some time. But what I'm saying is that you take an interest. You find somebody and you say, I, w- I really want to get to know you. I- I- I'm i interested. Could we have coffee together? And then just ask simple things like, um, don't ask what you do for a living. That's All the guys do that. They get together, where do you work? Yeah. What, what kind of job do you do? You know, because our whole identity is wrapped up in what we do. You know, no. I ask things like, um, when you have free time, what do you enjoy most doing? When you don't have anything else to do, what would you like to do? If you if you if you could do anything you wanted to do in the world, what would that be? If you could go any place you wanted to go, where would you visit and why? I, just stuff like that. Just get to know someone about. Oh, almost 12 years ago now. I was taking a summer seminar on uh, kind of looking at God's work in my life in the past, and as we were boiling down to the end, uh, I was taking this with John Casey at Blanchard Road Alliance, and as we got down to the toward the end, the last day, he said, "I want you to draw a circle, and above the circle, I want you to put two or three people that have mentored you, that you, that are your mentors." Below the circle, I want you to put two or three people that you want to mentor, that you want to invest yourself in to bring along, like a Paul to a Timothy. And then he said, out in the side, I want you to put a couple of people that are alongside you, their colleagues, to whom you would like to be mutually accountable. And, and I want you to purpose to connect with those people and start those kinds of relationships. You know, to go to to go to the older, wiser person and say, "Would you mentor me? <laughs> Would you be a helper to me in this area?" Or to say, can, "Can I spend some time with you?" Or I'd like to just get to know you better and and ultimately become accountable to you to pray for you, whatever. And so uh, I was praying about that, and God laid a peer relationship on my mind with Mike Hine over at Maranatha Assembly. Interestingly enough, he was doing his Doctor of Ministry degree. And his assignment was to find a fellow pastor in the area that he could meet with weekly that would uh, uh, he would be accountable to for his work. And so um, God put me on his heart. So I called him up and he says, I was going to call you. <clears throat> and uh, I said, well, I'd like to meet with you every week for a while because, you know, this is what I've been asked to do, and I think it would be good. I, you're on my heart. It's somebody I'd like to do that with. And he said, well, that's exactly what i was going to call you about. So I love it when God brings something together. So we started meeting every week, and we have met every week that we're in town for 12 years. And in the beginning, we just talked about academic stuff, you know, just general front-page news kind of stuff. This is the weather, blah, blah, blah. Now we pray for each other. We can talk about one another's marriages. We can talk and pray for our boys. We can talk about our lives. I can tell him what I'm struggling personally with. I don't mean about you guys. I mean about me. This is how I. This is what I'm dealing with. You know, I can, I can text him and say, you know, I'm am really fighting depression right now. Would you pray for me, or or I'm do, whatever. I, I have that relationship built that we hold one another up. I know what he's doing. I know what he's, where he is. I know where he is right now. He's on a boat with his wife's family on a cruise going to Alaska. And I know that because I dropped him off at the airport, and I'll pick him up next Sunday. We're invested. We care for each other. We pray for each other. I have that relationship with people in the congregation, but I I don't want to abuse it and tell you all about names. But I want you to purpose to build those kinds of relationships to where you have people that you can connect with and and pray with and encourage and, and rejoice with and cry with and share the burdens with Because a joy shared is multiplied and a sorrow shared is divided in half. And God wants us to invest our energies not in ourselves, but in each other as we care for one another. A church is a family that cares for one another. We take that challenge, find somebody, and make the connection. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Help us to be intentional and deliberate about obedience. Not just to have good thoughts, but to have purpose and intention to make time, to make investment, to build bonds of friendship and trust that can stand the weight of truth so that we can love each other in tough times and in good times. Bless us, Lord, and make us a close-knit family. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There you are.